Welcome. I'm Ross Young, and I'm here with Gmar Cardi, and we are both excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. CISO Tradecraft is a podcast which discusses how to navigate people, processes, technologies, and environmental issues within the information security industry. The show focuses on mentoring the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, we are excited to take you to today's show. Well, hello again. This is G. Marcardi with Ross Young. Welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, where we try to provide you with the insights and the knowledge and the wisdom to help you do a better job in your security management and security leadership career. Today, we're going to be talking about the scourge of ransomware and something that I think all of us have to be well aware of and hopefully never have to deal with it. But in the case that it does happen or you get a near miss, there's a lot of things you need to know about this ecosystem and we want to share a lot with that with you today. Yeah, I'm very glad that you brought this up. You know, any organization needs to defend itself against the risks that are attacking today, all the all the major threats, if you will. And certainly the biggest one we're seeing cause impact to schools, to government agencies, to commercial companies is ransomware, right? This is a, a million-dollar problem for most organizations, but on a larger scale, it, it's becoming billions and trillions of dollars. It, it's crazy how fast this is growing. So what I thought we would do today is take a little bit to think about what is it why do we care? And what are we going to do about it? Right. And really go through all the details here, because as a CISO, you need to be able to explain this to the non-technical board members, like your chief finance officer, your chief legal officer, and get budgets and all sorts of things that come from this. But unless you can clearly articulate what it is and why they care, no one's going to listen. So G Mark, let's start off with uh, the first question. What is ransomware? Well, Ross, kind of the definition I came up with is as follows. It's it's any software that facilitates leverage on a victim that is then followed by a demand for ransom. Now, in the past, in the early days, it was typically encryption, but not always. If we remember, there's some things such as like a MongoDB where they said, hey, we'll go, go delete things. But now what we're seeing is a move toward a different type of attack where they're talking about possibly publishing information that they have uh, stolen and exfiltrated. So ransomware then would fit into or cover all those different types of attacks. Okay. So when I think about it, I, I think you've called it out just right. It, it's basically malware with a ransom, right? That's where you're getting the, the where from the word, right? Mm -hmm. So now that we know what it is, why is this working? I mean, we pay a lot of money for cybersecurity departments. Didn't we fix this? Well, you kind of hope so. But the thing is, if you look at our traditional CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, availability, what do we as CISOs and security leaders spend most of our time on? The C and the I. The A, we're like, okay, fine, that's a backup power system. We want to make sure that we have redundancy. But, but by and large, the A is almost a lower case. Unfortunately, for those of us who tend to neglect the importance of it, ransomware is a direct monetization of an attack on availability. Now, it has some advantages for the attacker. You don't need a whole lot of command and control. Some of this can be taken place automatically. It can just go ahead, point, click, and somebody downloads something, oops, your files are encrypted. That didn't take any effort on behalf of a skilled operator someplace else. 
And the early versions of ransomware, the traditional ones, didn't even require egress. You didn't have to find a way to sneak stuff out. And however, now when you accompany the I, I'm sorry, the A attack, the availability attack with confidentiality attack, now that allows extortion, which is not just you won't get your files back, but uh, someone else will find about your files. Yeah. You know, as I think about this, you know, this is big business and where you can steal millions of dollars from companies, there's always going to be criminals who are looking to do so. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so now that we're into this environment, you know, you think about the availability, you, you, you called it spot on that traditionally organization said, Hey, do we have backups? Great. Hey, can we write to those backups? Oh, we didn't think about that. We have backups though. Right. So it, it's about making sure security is this full fledged process that works in all parts of the confidentiality, integrity, availability cycle. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And there's a lot of different types of ransomware as well. I mean, it's not monolithic. Uh, we could say that there's a you know, classify them three basic categories client side, your desktop or laptop, or in some cases, even phones and tablets. Uh, those are viable targets. Server side, going after either systems in your data center or even those up in the cloud, and even hybrid, kind of client side and file shares. Okay. So how do those work? I, I know you mentioned the three. What would we expect to see in client side ransomware attacks? Well, Ross, a client side ransomware attack, ideally, it's really sort of a numbers game. Uh, it's sort of like carpet bombing your your targets with all these weaponized phishing emails. It's interesting if you take a look at companies that deal with spam and things like that, we'll find that the overall amount of spam that is being filtered out today is significantly less than it was four or five years ago. I think we've dropped from 91 or 92% of our mail being spam uh, to down probably in the 70s or 80s. Well, it's still a lot, but the point is, is that that's a significant reduction. But the difference is that the malicious content has skyrocketed. The clickable links that it will entice a user to perhaps download and open a file. Sometimes that can be done with malvertising where any particular website will accept a third-party ad, it's screened, it's verified, and then afterward the advertiser, the malvertiser, if you will, swaps out the attachment for download. Someone thinks they're downloading a player. They, in fact, download, oops, your files are encrypted. And the other thing I've seen, which is rather clever, is deceptive naming of either attachments or URLs. Something that ends in .exe, you wouldn't want to definitely use, but you might have something such as quarterlysalesreport.doc.microsoft.com.exe. And in the effort to make things more readable for users. Sometimes that latter portion is truncated and the clever attacker is going to make sure that all you see is what looks reasonable. Now, yeah, yeah I, I think that's a good point. You know, we're, we're seeing attackers get very crafty, right? So maybe they have badguywebsite.com and instead of putting that website out there, they'll just give a bit.ly link to it, right? And you're like, yeah. oh, I see bit.ly links all the time but Bitly could point to whatever it wants, right? And, and they're also doing things in the Office Excel documents. So they're putting macros with, with ransomware and, and things that are going to beacon out, out of the, your environment to get on your, on your network. But when you actually look, 
They're using white font in a white cell and column JJ on row 30,000, right? Good luck finding that for the average person, right? And so people don't even know those things are there if they try to look. And if they click the, you know, enable macros, it's too late. Yeah. So, so now that we kind of thinking about client side ransomware, how is server side different? What is that really focused on? Well, server side ransomware typically is not accessed through this human click on an email, pick up a USB out of the parking lot link. Uh, servers don't do dumb things like that. And so therefore, attackers are going to target internet exposed resources. The goal is to, first of all, gain a toehold, often through some known exploit or some known vulnerability that hasn't been patched, and then pivot internally. If the attacker is diligent, they will be in there for a while enumerating servers, trying to figure out what your backup infrastructure is, and then diligently create a separate key for every target server. Then when they're ready to go, when they think they've got everything in sequence, uh, they will create a detonation sequence pretty much by scripting it. I've seen some cases where educational institutions got compromised over the summer, but with all the students at home, it wasn't that big of an impact if their servers were down for a few days. And so the attackers patiently waited uh, until all the students were back in session. And then with all the processing that was involved, then they activated it. So they, uh, they sometimes think about these things. There does give us a bit of an advantage, which if we get a chance, in fact, we might even have to do an entire episode on this, on what was called the Lockheed Martin kill chain. And uh, the cyber kill chain is a trademark term for Lockheed Martin. So we can call it a kill chain or something like that and avoid the trademark. And then I don't own a dollar. But their process of reconnaissance, weaponization, delivery, exploitation, installation, command and control, and then actions on the objective, give the defender an opportunity to catch any one of those phases. And if you can, if you can tackle the runner on the two yard line, you still prevented a touchdown. And the idea there with the, the lock mark kill chain suggests that as defenders, we have many places to go ahead and do an in, uh, interruption or an intervention. Yeah. So what we're seeing is is folks using tools like Shodan to enumerate the internet and find places where there's remote code exploitation vulnerabilities. They use that to pick a target and they say, okay, we're on a box in the network. Let's see where we can go from these credentials, right? They're they're following that kill chain of laterally moving and, and getting credentials until they find something of interest. And then they go to town on your data, right? Well, what about these incidents? When when these happen, whether it's from a client or server side, how expensive is this for organizations? Well, it's interesting when you look at the economics and some of the incidents. I mean, in terms of the costs, what you have is regulatory fines, you know, of course, pay the ransom or don't, penalties, legal fees, perhaps, particularly shareholders or somebody wants to sue you, uh, loss of business because you're out of an order, uh, your reputational damage plus all these remediation costs. So if we take a look at a couple well-known ransomware incidents, and I'm deliberately picking some from a couple years ago, so I'm not picking at somebody when the runes are still a little bit raw. Uh, City of Atlanta was presented about a $52,000 ransom payment, and they said, no, as a matter of principle, we refuse to pay that, and spent over $2.5 million. At least that's what they indicated. The City of Baltimore in May of 2019 had a demand for seventy-six grand. Although they haven't officially estimated it, talking to consultants and other people who've worked on it, they estimated the city spent 
over 200 times that amount, $18 million trying to get things back up and running. Uh, you know, my son lives in Baltimore. I said I couldn't pay my water bill for months and things such as that. So the choking off of the revenue because citizens couldn't pay their bills. And you're thinking, what responsible public servant would deliberately want to pay 200 times the cost than when presented with a particular payout? And of course, we'll get into things in a moment in terms of whether or not you should pay. In these cases, they said no. Uh, in Florida, Back in June of 2019, Lake City, Riviera Beach, paid the ransom. In total, about a million dollars in Bitcoin, when Bitcoin was only about $8,000. And uh, Kaspersky, in their report, said over a third of their victims took more than a week to regain access. So it gets expensive. Uh, Cisco estimated $6,000 average ransom paid in 2018. Then it went up to 12000 in 2019. And then if we jump over to Coveware, because they issue a quarterly report, the high watermark was in Q3 of 2020, over $230,000 average payment, dropping off to about $150,000 in Q4 because companies just finally said, we're just not going to do it. Yet if we take a look at the rate of return for what the economics are of ransomware, it's staggering. Back in 2016, the estimate was that Lockheed, when it was running rampant, could lock up as many as 90,000 victims a day. Now, obviously, that wasn't every single day of every day of the year, but Bitcoin was 600 bucks. And those profits there were estimated by law enforcement at about $500 million. Now, if attackers just held their Bitcoin position, hey, they just stuck it in their bottom drawer, they would have over $50 billion. And that's just one single ransomware family. So what's the total cost? Now, I don't necessarily agree with this number, but Cybersecurity Ventures estimated about $6 trillion in economic impact for 2021, which caused some people to say, hey, uh, why doesn't our government just start doing ransomware? And uh, maybe we can balance our budget and pay for all the stuff we want to do. I mean, is it, would a government ever do that? Well, we've definitely seen instances where nation states are hacking companies, right? So the Saudi Aramco company has been hacked. You know, we've seen different companies, uh, even banks, North Korean banks, or I'm sorry, North Korea has attacked banks overseas and used that to do wire fraud. I certainly would imagine that given the potential money revenue that could be generated, if you were a poor country, this may be a viable option to consider although completely unethical and wrong. Hope nobody does this. But, you know, sometimes things are viewed as all's fair in love and war, right? Yeah, ethics are usually viewed from the perspective only of the victim, not the attacker. But if you think about it, uh, a nation like the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, with all the economic sanctions that are placed on them, with the difficulties it had with harvest and other things like that, this is a viable means of funding their government. And as far as uh, they're concerned. It's not a matter of Western ethics. It's a matter of economic survival. And to a certain extent, shame on us if we allow operators from anywhere, whether it's organized crime, nation states, or just individual hackers, to gain a toehold in our network and actually do stuff. But of course, maybe one of our errors are that we keep setting up defenses like a Maginot line, just hoping it keeps the bad guys out. 
So with ransomware, you know, just becoming more and more popular, are we seeing any changes that are happening from maybe how ransomware used to be and, and how it is now? Yeah, I think the Schlieffen plan for the uh, ransomware was just to an end around these uh, defenses to say, hey, guess what? Companies are building more robust backup systems. They're backing up more frequently. They're keeping them offline. So when these ransomware demands go out, the victims are saying, well, never mind. I've got my own backups. Thank you very much. What we can do as defenders, of course, and what I've done in my enterprise is I'm using tools uh, that are available through Microsoft. In our Microsoft tenant, we can turn on things such as OneDrive. And so that as we educate our users and we set up default directories, as they're working on things, they get copies saved to OneDrive, which keeps generational backups. Ransomware hits, guess what? You can back up to the last known good. In addition, there's ransomware protection on Microsoft endpoints. You can actually go through on a Windows 10, go ahead and start typing R-A-N-S-O and you'll get the ransomware protections, which allows you to limit what applications can write to key directories. So that's been our traditional approach. But what we're seeing changing, Ross, is the payment demands are going up and the massive increase in, in Bitcoin price is making monstrous fortunes for attackers. Uh, if you think about it, as we move toward, quote unquote, accepting Bitcoin as mainstream, we're instantiating huge profits in the hands of criminals and encouraging more of that activity because essentially most of these hackers are going to operate in jurisdictions that are outside of their victims' law enforcement uh, control. Uh, companies are investing in the offline backup technology, but as we say in the military, the enemy gets a vote. And so a key thing to keep in mind, attackers are pivoting to exfiltration of sensitive information in PII and using that as leverage. And so now it's not a matter of pay me to get your availability back. It's pay me or I am going to release this internal corporate email and cost you customers. I'm going to release the sensitive information, which could embarrass you or create lawsuits, or we're going to publish privacy protected information and create a nightmare for you with GDPR compliance or the California Privacy Protection Act or anything else that happens to be out there. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting place to be. If you're in an organization and you know the attackers, they, they send you, here's a directory list of everything we stole. And here's three files that show very sensitive things, right? Because it's next quarter's earnings right before it goes out. Right, those things there uh, have major issues, and you're thinking about, oh man, what are my regulators going to tell me? You know, am I going to be in audit hell for the next uh, couple years of my life because of this? And and do I want to just you know make this go away? Particularly in the medical industry, where hey, these are things that could cause loss of life if these IT systems aren't up and running uh, quickly you know, when doctors can't get access to patient information. So it, it becomes a very hard ethical decision of where you want to draw the line and what you want to do there. Yeah. And, and attackers were really lowering the bar. That is to say, there's now ransomware as a service. An inexperienced operator can target victims in exchange for a piece of the action. And as a result, you're basically, if you will, leasing cloud services where you're depending upon the skill sets of this professional attacker, if you will, they're paying a commission. And I've even seen some families of ransomware that say, hey, if you get ransomware, but you can get three other entities ransomware, we'll, we'll give you back your files. 
that's not the kind of friend you want to have. So as we start to think about this, we talked about the different types of ransomware. Why does it keep working, right? Yeah, it's an excellent question because this has been around a while. And I think the big reason is users are gullible. Uh, and human gullibility is always going to be a factor. I remember if you go to DEF CON and you see the shirts that from the social engineering village, you can get a black shirt on the front that says social engineer. And on the back, it says, because there's no patch for human stupidity. Well, we'll avoid the stupid word, but we'll use gullible. I think it's a little bit less offensive, but it's probably even more accurate. You can have brilliant people that are gullible. Uh, I had a CEO who fell within uh, seconds of having his whole system ransomware. Uh, I got called in because he was talking to Microsoft for almost 25 minutes. And as I got to his office, I saw a little um, DOS window open up and all the files being enumerated, just scrolling by. He was seconds away from losing everything and a whole bunch of pull the network cable and Alt F4, Alt F4, Alt F4 stopped it at the two yard line. But that's a brilliant, successful, wealthy business person who's gullible. Also, the endpoint configurations are not correct. We don't have the correct defenses set up in there. We don't have ways to prevent different applications from running in the sensitive area, or we're not storing things correctly. The network configurations might not be correct, and therefore allowing lateral movement without detection for the server-side ransomware. Uh, access control isn't correct. Somebody steals a guest user account, they don't get to do a whole lot of damage, but if they have a domain admin, you know, game over. In essence, a lot of things have to go wrong for ransomware to work right. Yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting place, right? If you think about it, when somebody signs up for a social media account, they don't have to present a driver's license. They can just kind of anonymize who they are. And this is how we see child predators you know, target people. But you can think of the same thing for attackers targeting an organization. They could be anything. They could come in and say, hey, we are Boy Scouts of America, and we're thinking about you know, doing a volunteer charity activity with your company. Uh, oh, who wouldn't want to be a part of that, right? And, and you start to think of that'd be really good from a brand PR issue, but it's a whole scam just to get you to click on a link, right? Yeah, so and pe people's intentions are good, but their trust and gullibility can be harmful. And that's why we're seeing on, on most like phishing attacks where organizations are doing these internal testing, you're still getting five to 10% of folks clicking an email, even after they've gone through phishing awareness training, right? And it's interesting because we talk about what's considered to be acceptable, kind of a little diversion here, looking at security awareness training and evaluating as effective. And for the most part, I think 5% or less is considered to be a passing score. Well, of course, some might argue, hey, even one in 20, even one in a 10,000 are enough to affect the organization if there's proper lateral movement, proper being it'll work. Yeah, I agree. But if the default is 30% and you've got it down to five or less, you certainly improved it. And that security awareness is not a monolithic defense. There's a lot of other things you can do. But the hard part is, is that we're not up against just a lone hacker sitting in dad's and mom's basements eating pizza and Mountain Dew, not paying any bills. Uh, we're facing a little bit more sophisticated type of an attacker. So 
So let's talk about these types of attackers. I mean, I know we always hear about things like Russian criminal groups that may be going after a company. Sounds like there's million dollars to be made on big paydays for large organizations. What does that look like in reality, G. Mark? Help us get through the, the fluff. Well, if we take a look at the other side, we'll find out that ransomware is being run as a business. I mean, to the point where you have a lease on a building, you have equipment that you buy, desks and chairs, pay the heat and electric, have an ISP connection, payroll benefits, probably some MBAs in there as well, running this thing, trying to optimize a financial output. And if they're wise, they'll operate out of the reach of the law enforcement's jurisdiction of their targets, as I had said before. But when you think about it, if you were to take a little bit of time to try to understand what are the business elements in running effective ransomware, we'd find out that there's several stages that have to be completed. We have to exploit identification. We have to figure out ways that we could somehow take advantage of something that allows us to elevate privilege uh, and then develop that software so that it could be gone ahead and pushed out. Then ideally obfuscate the malware so it can get past the defender's filters have some sort of internet communications interface for command and control, as well as downloading payloads and doing key exchanges, uh, website hacking tools so that one could go ahead and place that malware, that ransomware in legitimate sites, uh, spam bots, which you can either own or rent them. And there's a lot of services out there that will allow you to send a lot of spams. I remember uh, back, I think it was 2002, I spoke at a conference down in El Defe, Mexico City, and the speakers were kind of put two to a room and the gentleman that I was paired up with was down from Argentina. What was interesting was he was the biggest spammer in the world at the time. And everybody's thinking, oh, that would be from, for example, Russian Federation or Eastern Europe. No, it was down from South America. And I kind of asked him about it and he explained the economics. He said, he said, every week I add a few tens of thousands of systems and I lose a few hundred of them as people kind of figure it out. But I basically have an ever-growing network and he just rents it out. So you schedule your spam like you'd set up a dentist appointment. Hey, I get you in a week from Thursday. How does two o'clock sound? And for the next two hours, that's what he does is his uh, bots will be pumping out spam all over the place. So there's a business in of itself. Uh, also managing crypto keys. That has to be done correctly if you want to get your, your money back. Ways to monetize it, setting up Bitcoin wallets and we probably should do an episode on that because I've done a lot of research on cryptocurrency over the years. Fortunately, I wish I had been buying more of it than just studying it. I probably wouldn't have to be doing these podcasts. But the point is, is that uh, there's a whole world right there, plus money laundering. How do we go ahead and get rid of all of this, quote unquote, ill-gotten gains and turn it into something useful? And let's not forget customer support. Turns out that customer support is sort of a feature uh, in the genuine sense of a feature of a lot of these ransomware families. I know of one person early on uh, and her friend's mom got ransomware. Well, mom was a grandmother and the ransomware demand was for a couple hundred dollars of Bitcoin. Well, a grandmother trying to buy Bitcoin is, is like a grandmother trying to buy heroin. Like, where do you start? And so he helped her out a little bit and they, uh, they like, wait, we're almost out of time. Uh, we kind of figured it out, but then because of the volatility in the Bitcoin price, it had dropped and they didn't have enough money to pay the ransom. And with the clock running out, she said, hey, mom, look, there's a little thing, click here for help. And they got an online help. And the person said, may I help you? And he said, well, I'm here with my mom and we're trying to pay the ransom, but 
Bitcoin price changed and we don't have the $200 anymore. It's only worth about 188 and the time's running out. Is that good enough? What do you think this customer support agent said from the other side of the world? Sure, $108 is better than nothing. Took and gave them all their files back. And you know, the funny thing was, is that this lady, oh, wasn't he such a nice young man? Mom, he took our money. Yes, but he was so polite and helpful. And so what we see then is that is ransomware is a business if it's going to be run effectively, it needs professional management and a lot of moving parts. Yeah, especially on the negotiations. You know, can you imagine what type of hostage negotiation tactics you must have when they're negotiating a $20 million ransomware package and maybe they settle on five, right? And, and it works. Uh, I've read a number of things. And of course, some of these numbers are just not published. Uh, you don't necessarily want the world to know, you know, where you started, where you ended up. But in general, a large percentage of ransomware is negotiable. Back in the day when it was sort of the target of opportunity, I think it was MedStar Health back in 2016, they got ransomware. I think the ransom was on like five Bitcoin, meh, a few thousand bucks. Well, back then anyway. And they went back to the attacker and said, why are you attacking us? Why are you trying to ransom us? We're, we're an American. Now, I don't, this is anecdotal, so don't get mad at me if I get it completely wrong. But, uh, you know, okay, we'll, we'll call it FedStar Health. There we go. We'll use a fictitious entity. And now I'm not making a mistake here. And so they went back and they said, uh, well, why are you ransoming us? We're an American healthcare company. We only do, all we do is we do good. And the response was, oh, you're an American healthcare company, not a grandmother? That'll be 50 Bitcoin, not five. And uh, they ended up not paying the ransom and, and recovering things back in this quote unquote fictitious entity. But the point was, is that it, it really kind of brings up an interesting question. Hmm. What do you think that would be, Ross? I think the biggest question of all is, should you pay the ransom? Yeah. And I mean, on principle, we say no. But I respectfully suggest for a lot of organization, that's the wrong question. Forget principles. The question is, what costs more, the ransom or the cost of operational downtime? If you're going to be down and, well, let's think about, for example, a jackknifed ship in the Suez Canal, which is estimated at $400 million an hour in impact. Now, that's not ransomware, but imagine that you had $400,000 an hour of lost business opportunity. And somebody asked for a $50,000 ransom. What do you do? Well, on principle, we'll never pay ransom. It's like, boss, that's four minutes or five minutes worth of operations. If it doesn't work, we can still go on and do everything else. But the, the point is this, is that a lot of times it does work. And there is sort of a ethos, if you will, among ransomware operators that say, we're going to go ahead and if uh, somebody gives us the money, we're going to give them back the key. And let's say a new ransomware operator wanted to get in the business, so to speak, they kind of get told, hey, dude, the way this works is that you collect, you give the key back. Well, why do I have to, man? Because everybody believes if they pay, they get their files back. It's good for the ecosystem. Now, I'm going to point out two things that I've often seen. One is a lot of times it's not the company actually making the payment to the ransomware. It's the company's insurance company that has to pay off. And so that can be one way that I've seen people almost miss a trip. Well, I didn't pay it. 
It was the insurance company that paid it. And, and the other big piece that I would have to say is we're seeing new legislation come in from Department of Treasury which and, and the IRS, where they basically say, how do you know when you paid money to this ransomware gang, you weren't paying to a sanctioned entity? Because that would be illegal and wrong. And so it's getting a little trickier to pay, but uh, certainly it's something that is a business decision for right or wrong. And you need to go and talk to your legal counsel. You need to go and talk to your executives in your company and figure out what the right stance is. And that's an excellent point because you know two items here. One is the Office of Foreign Access Control, or OFAC, runs a sanctions list. And you have to be careful if you're going to go ahead and pay ransom that you may be paying ransom directly to an entity that is deli- you know, specifically listed on that OFAC exclusion list. I remember I was asked by a client last year, hey, we got ransomware. Can you help us? And one of the things we're looking at is, well, what's the ransom for? What's the cost of your operational downtime, et cetera, et cetera? And uh, a buddy of mine said, hey, Mark, ask them what family of ransomware they have. See if they can figure it out. Well, they did. And he went back and said, guess what? People who run that are on the OFAC list. They cannot pay. If they pay, they are violating federal law, which means you're kind of stuck in a way that you got to come up with a different answer. But if we go back to that question of which costs more, the ransom or the cost of the operational downtime, you want to explain why you can't meet your service level agreements to your CIO or to your CEO or to the board of directors or your customers? And um, now that the threat of releasing information is part of that equation, does that change your thinking about paying the ransom? And, And I think the healthcare example is probably the most interesting one. So let's say you're an organization and you just didn't do patching well and you get attacked and ransomware in your environment from that. Well, now all of a sudden you are unable to provide medical services to people, which is causing loss of human life, right? Well, now you're going to have a lot of upset families that are going to start suing you as a medical institution. Do you think those lawsuits are going to start costing more than paying the ransom? And could you have paid the ransom early on and then you would have had maybe five days less of disruption? Mm -hmm. Do you think they're also going to have a lot of due care? lawsuits because you didn't patch well enough and that was the cause which led to this especially imagine if it was a billionaire who died you know could you imagine how much money you'd have to pay for the loss of life of a billionaire right it it becomes a very difficult thing to quantify and and we would never advocate breaking us law but make sure you treat it like a business decision right and and i'm not advocating this but i could conceptually see this happening is to say, hey, wait, I can't pay that ransom. It's an OFAC, but could I get a third party to pay him off and then perhaps pay that person as a consultant, a subcontractor, retainer fee or whatever? Again, not recommending that. That's probably in violation of the law as kind of a workaround, uh, but uh, I'm not advocating breaking law whatsoever. I'm just pointing out that there are ways to get business done. And in the case of if for example, a kidnapper were on the OFAC list and they kidnapped your child and they said, pay us the ransom or your child dies a horrible death. I think we would rather get our child back and then worry about the legal consequences later. But this are information systems and we should be able to do some defense. And it's kind of almost these days, shame on us if the stuff gets through. 
So tell me, what are the defenses organizations should be applying to identify systems that could be vulnerable, protect, and and detect the ransomware in their environments? Excellent. Well, if you think about the NIST cybersecurity framework, identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, it's a sequential set of um, kind of macro steps, which is a lot of smaller ones in there that allow us to go ahead and identify ways that we can intervene. And then, of course, ideally catch stuff early on. Probably an excellent way to do it. And I've seen some mappings done already. Uh, At least uh, I found 19 mentions of them in the attack.mitre.org software directory of Ransom is using the MITRE attack framework. And if we take a look at the 14 different tactics that are typically associated. I'm not going to go into the details on everyone. You can certainly go to attack.mitre.org and look it up. But what you'll see then is things such as that initial access and the execution and persistence and privilege escalation, uh, defense evasion, lateral movement, command and control. These are things we can do something about. And because we can do something about them, it's really incumbent upon us to be able to try to do absolutely everything in our power to prevent this from happening. Now I can see a circumstance where you have quote unquote done everything right and either through the action of a insider gone bad, the insider threat, someone who says, hey, I'm, I need money and I don't like my boss and so I'm gonna go ahead and ransomware my boss's company and use that to pay for my bills. Scenario like that where a trusted insider introduces something, it's a little bit harder to defend against it, particularly if they're a sysadmin. But more to the point is there are some regular defenses that we can use that um, allow us to have perhaps a better type of a program. Ross, what do you think is the number one defense that we often see organizations doing today? Well, I I think if we go back to that earlier piece of attacking clients, right, now we're talking about the phishing uh, examples. We really have to have something that's some type of security awareness training where we're training the human element, which may be the weakest link, but we want it to become our strongest link, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and if you take a look, for example, this regular security awareness training, uh, a company uh, right around the corner from me, no before. Uh, has reached about a $2 billion valuation. They're doing an IPO in 2021. Uh, I know Stu went over to his office when he had about 30 employees. He's now well over 1,000. His focus is on security awareness training. Interestingly enough, a few years back, he bought a bunch of Bitcoin saying, hey, you do our training and your people click on links and you get ransomed, we'll pay the ransom. Well, he never had to pay out much Bitcoin that way, but his little cash of Bitcoin yielded a pretty handsome return. Reinforce policies with your users about credential sharing. Don't do it. Uh, File sharing programs, making that available. So instead of sending email attachments, send a link to a box or SharePoint or something like that, where the other person could then access that using the MFA or other types of controls. So nobody is going to trust an emailed attachment. If I email something that looks like it has active content to you, Ross. Ross is going to say, well, Mark, you're supposed to be using Box. This came, it says it came from you. Um, we should look at it. Uh, don't render Word or Acrobat files with the native apps on the desktop. Microsoft knows this. They put a little warning. This file is in read-only mode. Do you really want to undo this protection? So users get alerted. They need to pay attention to alerts. Uh, ideally, uh, block macros. 
uh, with group policy or something like that, unless it's an internal financial spreadsheet. Uh, and then here's a key thing, and this is a culture issue. There should be a culture of no fear and no blaming for self-reporting. Someone ought to be able to turn themselves into the CISO saying, I think I just did this, or I just coughed up my credential, or I just did something, uh, and I need to put myself on report and know that they're going to be treated with a certain level of respect and possibly even confidentiality because the number one mission is to protect the organization. Yeah, and, and what we're seeing is organizations having a button for report spear phishing inside of Outlook, right? And, and then they click that and they self-report. And, and many of the self-reports come post-facto where I click this link, I think something screwy is happening on my computer, please make it stop, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm sorry that it happened, but I'd rather have them tell me that it happened than a couple hours later where damage really becomes amplified, Right. And so that's a huge piece of how do you build that self-reporting culture as well as how do you even get them to report it before they click the link? And you say, oh, that's a good email. Don't worry about it. You can go through and click it, right? Right. You never, ever ridicule somebody for reporting a false positive. In fact, when I, we get those, uh, we had just some yesterday uh, that uh, one person reported it and we went immediately went ahead and blocked the sender. And a few minutes later... The uh, chief operating officer said, hey, I, I was just going through my email. I found this. And we could say, hey, we've already spotted it. We've deactivated it. Good catch. But we get ahead of it. Other things we can do. Um, keep your systems patched. Patch and patch and then patch again. Make sure you have a good patch and vulnerability management process. That's going to be right up there in your, your top four actions under your critical security controls. Uh, do ongoing scans and pen tests. See if you can spot the weaknesses that could be used for lateral movement before attackers find them themselves. Have verifiable offline backups. One of the big things here is backups have been engineered for hazard. We have to rethink a use case for malice. It's not as easy to engineer away malice, but one way we can do is never leave backups connected or ideally Disconnect your system from the internet while doing your backup. Yeah. So uh, another way to think of these offline backups, just two examples, like could you plug in a, a thumb drive and, and copy the data off once a week or once a day? Or could you have a read-only copy that is, that is made so people don't have access to it? Right. And, and, and excellent ideas here. Uh, going ahead and encrypting some of your most sensitive information in the database when it's not actually in use. Now there's homomorphic encryption that's coming online that allows you to work with encrypted data. But by and large, if someone tries to say, hey, we stole your data, we'll publish it. It's like, good luck with that. If you got our key, you've got your keys to encrypt ours. We encrypted it before you got it. Uh, block removable media. So nobody puts in a little something they find in the parking lot or the uh, little USB device and has a surprise in it. Um, how about for the mail? using Center Protection Framework, DMARC, and DKIM. We've done a recent episode on that, all the ways you could defend your mail system against unusual attachments or, or, or originators and even block those things. Here's a couple things you can do with DNS. Uh, block the known malicious domains for command and control or download. There's a lot of threat intelligence sources out there that let you do that. One of the things that I do is I block all top-level domains. There's about 1,700 of them, by the way. I allow .com, .net, org, gov, 
mil edu, basically the original six, you know, .int was the seventh that was international. And probably .us and interestingly enough .io because so many companies like to use that, although that's the British Indian Ocean territories and the Indian Ocean. Everything else approved by exception. Attackers are going to use these off-brand top-level domains because they're administered differently. And a lot of those domains don't have to be paid for for 72 hours. They register a throwaway domain. They give the victim 72 hours to pay. Why? Because they don't intend to pay for the registration. It expires, the domain goes away, and uh, they keep their operating costs down. A couple last ideas. Uh, Sandboxed browsers or virtual detonation chambers. So things are tested before they take off. How about enforcing least privilege? As I said before, the most damaging is a compromised domain admin account. A single device guest account can't do a lot of damage when you try to run ransomware from that. Keep your network segmented. The more segmented, the better off you are. Uh, Maintain up-to-date signatures for your malware. Consider using application whitelisting or allow listing, whatever term you prefer. Uh, Incident response, practice your drills. And of course, multi-factor authentication. Even if somebody's able to guess a password, the little alert on the phone indicates, nope, I'm at the dinner table. That wasn't me. Something's going on. Excellent. Well, I think you provided a wealth of knowledge here on ransomware. You know, we went over why does it work? How does it work? What's kind of the the money logistics around it? You know, how common is this uh, across different companies and cities and different sectors? And what are some of the business decisions where are we going to pay it or not going to pay it? And remember, this is a business decision and you need to figure out what's right and follow all applicable laws. Thank you again for listening to this show. We always love having our listeners like, subscribe, and share the podcast. So do your part and help us help others with their CISO tradecraft. Thank you, everyone. Until next time, take care.